I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We began teaching a number of weeks ago on a, a series that we've entitled Spiritual Gifts or Manifestations of the Spirit. Paul writes to the church and says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. The word gifts is in italics. And as we say every time we read this verse, in the original Greek translation, the word spiritual is in the plural. Well, that doesn't make much sense to us. And so the translators added the word gifts in there to try to help us to gain understanding. And in most of the places where they tried to add something to to help us gain understanding, they did a good job. But here... They leave the false impression that everything in this 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians is about spiritual gifts or manifestations of the Spirit, and it's not. The word spirituals means things pertaining to and of the Holy Ghost. Now, he writes about three things in this 12th chapter. One that we call spiritual gifts or manifestations of the Spirit. Secondly, he talks about the body of Christ, how that we all fit together like the human body, work together in harmony. Well, that pertains to the Holy Ghost. And then at the end of the chapter, he talks about ministry gifts, apostles, prophets, teachers, and so forth. Well, those pertain to the Holy Ghost too. So the entirety of the 12th chapter is about things pertaining to and of the Holy Ghost. Now skip down to verse 4. He says, now there are diversities of gifts. That word gifts is in the original translation. He's talking about something else now, specifically manifestations of the Spirit. There are diversities of gifts with the same Spirit, and there are differences of administrations with the same Lord, and there are diversities of operations, but it's the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. Now notice where he talks about the manifestations of the Spirit, he talks about the operation of the Godhead in its entirety. Diversities of gifts, verse 4, but the same Spirit, there's the work of the Holy Spirit. Differences of administrations, but the same Lord. There's Jesus at work. And it says diversities of operations, but the same God. There's the Father God at work. In other words, the entirety of the work of the Godhead in the church is going to be found in these manifestations of the Spirit. God is going to do and only going to do that which is identified by the Holy Ghost through the Apostle Paul as one of these nine manifestations of the Spirit. If somebody claims that something else that happened outside of this list was God, the Bible discounts that. For to one, verse 8, is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith, or the Amplified says special faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healings. Now in the original translation, gifts and healings are always in the plural. Three times the the phrase gifts of healings are translated here in this 12th chapter. And only one of them translated accurately, gifts and healings, both in the plural. There's a plurality of gifts for a plurality of healings. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, diverse or different kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. But all of these worketh, thank God they all work. All these worketh that one and the self same spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. We talked last week about the gifts of healings, limitedly. And then this morning I want to talk to you about working of miracles. Now in the, the, uh, the world that we live in, the, world, the word miracle is used casually, not the way that the Bible uses it. For example, there are miracle detergents and miracle fabrics and miracle products and whatever. Well, the Bible speaks of miracles in a very specific sense. To define a miracle according to the Bible, 
we would have to define it this way or something similar to this. It would be divine intervention into the ordinary course of nature. Divine intervention into the ordinary course of nature. God established the world to work by rules and laws. There are certain laws of physics that govern the operation of the world. But there are times when God intervenes and has intervened, will intervene, to supersede those laws of nature. Now, the, the working of miracles is, um, is very prevalent in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. Less so in the New Testament. Now, does that mean God's not in this, still in the same miracle working business that he used to be? Doesn't mean that at all. But there's a greater emphasis in the New Testament from the writings that we have saved for us by the Holy Spirit. There's a greater emphasis in the New Testament of God's compassion being shown through healing and such than the power that was demonstrated in the Old Testament through the working of miracles. God's the same now as he was back then. He's the same miracle worker today as he was back then, but there are more healing miracles identified in the New Testament than there are in the Old. And as I said, we have to assume and have to conclude that it's a a revelation of God's compassion. Now, there's a lot of miracles that we know of that we won't have to take time to look at and read through the, the instances. We can just refer to, or at least I hope we can just refer to some of them and save the time of turning to them. But in the Old Testament, the working of miracles was something that was very, very prevalent to establish credibility, particularly for the prophets, the prophets' ministry. For example, the office of the prophet was uh, uh, inhabited by Moses. He was one of the first, really the first great prophet of Israel. And you remember how God dealt with him. He grew up in Pharaoh's palace, killed an Egyptian, and so fled for his life. And on the backside of the desert as a shepherd... When he was 80 years old, I'm comforted that God's not through with you till you're at least 120. Moses just got started when he was 80. I'm looking forward to 80. It's closer than it used to be. But at 80 years old, Moses saw the burning bush on the mountain. And so he went up to see what was going on. And God talked to him there and called him into the ministry. Told him the work that he had for him to do. He said, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Well, Moses' first question was the obvious one, and that is, who will I say sent me? And God identifies himself, say, I am that I am has sent me. Well, that didn't mean any more to Moses than it was going to mean to Pharaoh. So he said, well, how, why will he believe me when I say that? And so God gave him a sign that was the symbol of the working of miracles that, that typified his ministry. He asked him what he had in his hand, and he had a rod. Now, there were two um, implements that shepherds would use. One was the shepherd's staff, which is a long, crooked thing, uh, stick that, uh, that we know of and that we see in pictures. But the other was the rod. It was a weapon. It was a short stick that a, that a good shepherd would use to throw to scare away wild animals and hit snakes and stuff like that to protect the sheep. And so God asked Moses what he had in his hand, and he had the rod in his hand. So he told him to throw it down. And he did, and when he threw it down, it turned into a snake. Now, sticks don't normally turn into snakes, do they? So you can see divine intervention into the ordinary course of nature. When Moses ran from his own stick, God told him to pick it up, so he reached down and picked it up by the tail. 
I guess he didn't want anything to do with the business end of the stick. So he picked it up by the tail and it turned into a stick again. Well, Moses repeated this same event in Pharaoh's court. When he went to him the first time, he threw his stick down and it turned into a snake. And you remember the two sorcerers that were Pharaoh's advisors, Janus and Jambres, I think their names were. They threw their sticks down and their sticks turned into snakes too. So it tells us that the devil can do some miracles, things, miraculous works as well. The difference is Moses' snakes swallowed up their snakes. In other words, the supernatural of the miraculous works that the devil does, and the Bible says at the end time, particularly with the Antichrist, there'll be signs and wonders done by the works of the devil. Those can always, those will always be swallowed up by the works of God. Now Moses used that rod over and over and over again to bring about the plagues upon the children of uh, children of Egypt, the nation of Egypt. Time and time again, God would tell Moses to use the rod which was a type or the symbol of the working of miracles that operated in his ministry. He used the rod and stretched it out over the Nile River and it became blood. Well, water doesn't normally turn into blood, does it? So here's a miraculous intervention of God's power, divine intervention into the ordinary course of nature. Moses took the rod a little bit later and he struck the dirt and the dust of the earth turned into lice. Well, that's not a normal operation of things, is it? Now, here you've got something created from something that created something created from nothing, literally. It's a creative miracle taking place. Moses stretched out the rod to the heavens and hail fell, mingled with fire. Well, that's not an ordinary thing that happens, is it? Time and time again, this rod is used by Moses to work miracles. Now, the thing, about the thing about the miraculous, God is not limited to working of miracles to produce miracles. For example, we talked about the gift of faith. The gift of faith receives miracles. It's a passive receiver of the same miraculous act that a working of miracles performs. Now, let me show you something. Turn with me over to Exodus chapter 14. Time and time again, Moses uses the rod to perform the miracle works of God. But I want you to see something that shows us a little bit about the working of miracles. At least it helps me to understand a little better. Working of miracles is when somebody does something to produce a miracle. Now, God's still the author of the miraculous, and and he's the only one that can author miracles. But working of miracles is when the miraculous works through an individual. Now, here's where uh, the children of Israel have been released by Pharaoh, and then Pharaoh changes his mind and comes out against them. Exodus chapter 14. Um, Let's start reading in verse 9. It says, But the Egyptians pursued after them all, uh, after them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them in camping by the sea beside somewhere, before somewhere else. I'll let you pronounce it for yourself. And when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptian marched after them. And they were sore afraid, and the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord. And they said unto Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? This is a sharp group, folks. 
Every time trouble comes up, it's Moses' fault and it's God's fault. Wherefore hast thou dealt with us, dealt thus with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? Is not this the word that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than we should die in the wilderness. And Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you shall see them again no more forever. And the Lord shall fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. And the Lord said unto Moses, Wherefore criest thou unto me? Speak unto the children of Israel that they go forward. Now, folks, we've talked about this on several different occasions. There seems to be something that's being left out of the story here. And that is, it implies that Moses, after telling the people, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, then turns to the Lord and says, okay, God, what are we going to do? Because God then says, what are you asking me for? Well, who else is he supposed to ask? I mean, that seems like the logical thing to do, doesn't it? But here's the point that I want you to see. And here's the point that the Bible seems to be bringing out to us. And that is, God gave Moses the rod, which was the symbol of his miracle working power. He didn't expect Moses to talk to him about how to use it, but rather to use it when it was necessary. So he told him. This is not for you to ask me about. This is for you to use what I gave you. Now, folks, I think that's instructive for the church. Because if the Bible is telling us that God has given us the manifestations of the Spirit, as he wills, not as we will, but as he wills, to use to do the work that Jesus did here on the earth, then doesn't it stand to reason that he expects us to be intelligent enough to know when to use it to do the works that he gave us instruction to do? I think a lot of times we're sitting back like Moses saying, okay, God, what are we going to do about this when we've got the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Ghost already given to the church to take action to produce the works that Jesus did? So God tells Moses, verse 6, 16, I'm sorry, lift up thy rod and stretch out thine hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go up on dry ground through the midst of the sea. Then he tells him about hardening Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh will chase after him and the sea will drown him and so forth. But what I want you to see is God is saying to Moses, now get this. God is saying to Moses, this is not for me to do. This is for you to do. Now there's no question that Moses doesn't have the power to part the sea. We're certainly not saying that. We're certainly not saying that God is saying that Moses has the power and that he doesn't. We're saying that Moses is given the responsibility and the dictate to work miracles on God's behalf to save and protect and deliver the children of Israel. Now, if that's true for Moses and God never changes, why wouldn't that be true for the church? Now, I'm talking to me as much as I'm talking to you here. Because I think we all have a tendency, I certainly do, to stop and check and see what God would have done and let God do the work and you just stand back and and be the one that that, uh, 
reaps the benefits, so to speak, or sees the work of the Lord. But Moses is saying very simply this to the people of Israel, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Then God says, okay, now do your thing. Well, then why wouldn't he be saying to the church, okay, do your thing? Now, there's a real fine line here because so often, and I think it's particularly with the working of miracles, maybe the gifts of healings included as well, that we've got this idea among some in the church that it's kind of an X-man mentality where we're standing back and we're doing the works of God. And so often, human nature is such that we want to broadcast what's going to be done Not so much that God gets the glory, but so that people see that God uses us. But very few times does the Bible talk about the working of miracles operating in that way. Very few times. He didn't even tell Moses to tell the people, I'm going to part the sea. But that's the way we want it to be. We want to have the power of God and know that we have the power of God and feel the power of God so that we tell everybody what the power of God's going to do before we do it. And then when we do it, we look like we're big stuff. And that's not the way it works. Now, working of miracles operated through other prophets as well. Now, let me show you a difference between the the working of miracles and the gift of faith. In, um, well, I'll just relate the stories to you. If we need to turn to them, we will. But in 1 Kings chapter 17, I believe it is, Elijah has spoken to Ahab the prophet saying it's not going to rain again until I say so. And it didn't rain for three and a half years. Now, during that time of famine, God tells Elijah to go to the city of Zarephath. He said, behold, I have commanded a widow woman to sustain you there. So God has revealed to him, here's a word of knowledge. I'm sorry, a word of wisdom showing him his plan and purpose. Here's a word of wisdom showing him what God's plan for him during this famine will be and how God's going to sustain him and take care of him. He says, I've commanded a widow woman there to sustain you. (coughs) Well, he goes to Seraphath and he finds a widow woman. Now, if I'm Elijah, I'm going to be thinking it's going to be a rich widow woman. God's going to sustain me through a widow woman. She's going to have some kind of means. And so he goes to Seraphath and finds a widow that's gathering two sticks to make a fire so that he, she can make a small cake for herself and her son so that they'll have a last meal before they die. Now, I don't know how big a fire you think you can make with two sticks that a widow woman can carry, but there ain't much there. And so Elijah tells her to carry through with her plan, but make her, him something to eat first. And then he says this, he says, for the cruise of oil and the, all she says she has is a cruise of oil and a little handful of meal. He says, those things will not fail or run out until the end of the famine. Well, miraculously, and it is a miracle, miraculously, the oil and the meal last throughout the entirety of the famine. But now what is this? Did Elijah do anything to produce the miracle? No. But he spoke. He used faith based on what God's word of wisdom has revealed to him to receive the miracle. And so Elijah has a day after day after day after day after day after day after day miracle with the bottle of oil, 
and a handful of meal. Now, clearly it's a miracle. But did he produce the miracle? No, he didn't. He received the miracle based on what God told him. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Once God told him what his plan and purpose was, then the faith to receive that was inherent and present. Faith always comes by hearing, whether it's ordinary faith, whether it's saving faith, or whether it's special faith. But now contrast that with Second Kings chapter 4. Now Elisha is the prophet in Elijah's place. And there's a widow woman. She's a, a widow of one of the sons of the prophets. She comes to Elisha and says, my husband died and left us in debt. And so now my, my sons are going to be sold to the debtors, sold into slavery to pay for the debtors, or to pay the debtors off the money that we owe. And Elisha says, what do you have? And she says, I only have one little cruise or bottle of oil. So he gives her instruction. He says, go borrow as many jars and containers as you can. When you get inside your house, shut the door where it's just you and your sons and pour the bottle of oil into the other containers. He says the oil will not run out until every container is full. And that's exactly the way it happened. Now, what did Elisha do? Did he receive a miracle? No, he doesn't have any word from God to tell him what the situation is or what to believe for or anything like that. Clearly a miracle took place. What did he do? He worked the miracle. Now what was the working of miracles the result of? Well, she was one of the sons of the prophet's widow, ex uh, late wife. I didn't say that right, but you know what I'm saying. He died, she didn't. And here's a, a, a miracle being performed because he stands in the office of the prophet. Can you see the difference? There are numerous other examples like this. For example, in Mark chapter 4, it tells us that when Jesus fell asleep in the ship, they were traveling from one side of the lake to the other. A great storm of wind arose, and the disciples were afraid. It was early in the ministry of Jesus. And so the disciples were afraid, and so one of them woke him up and said, Master, you better wake up. We're about to die. Don't want to die when you're asleep, you know. So Jesus gets up and he rebukes the wind. He says, peace be still. And the the wind stopped. What did he do? He performed a miracle. He worked a miracle. That's not the ordinary course of nature. For wind and seas to cease at a word. He worked a miracle. But now on the other hand, Paul in about Acts chapter 19, chapter 20, 21, somewhere around there, I guess. Paul's in the middle of a three-week storm at sea. The angel appears to him and tells him what the outcome is going to be. He says to the the ship owners and the sailors that are on board, he says, you should have listened to me when I told you we shouldn't sail. He said, but don't worry. Everybody's life will be saved. The ship will be lost, but everybody's life will be saved because an angel stood by me this night and told me that this is how it was going to be. Wherefore, sirs, I believe God that it shall be even as it was told me. Why didn't Paul just rebuke the wind and the sea? There was no manifestation of the Spirit in working of miracles for him to stop the storm. But what did he have? He had a word from God that told him what the outcome would be, which always produces faith. So to what degree, whatever level of degree of faith you want to say that it is, he's operating in some special level of faith. 
I believe it was the gift of faith. It had to be. It's not ordinary faith that would have caused that. If it was ordinary faith that could have done it, he would have done it before the three weeks, period. But now he's got something extra from God because the angel delivered the message to him. So you've got two storms handled in two different ways. Remember over in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I think it's verse 6, it says, there are diversities of operations, but it's the same God that worketh all in all. God can produce miracles and come about the end result by a variety of different methods. The important thing is it's, it's a miracle either way. Now, there's something else that, you, that, uh, that I think is important. And that is, why don't you turn with me to, Acts, uh, to uh, Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8, you've got a lot of people in the body of Christ now that are saying the day of miracles is past. Folks, there never was a day of miracles. But there always has been and always will be a God of miracles. Some people think that when the last apostle died, all the gifts of the Spirit and miracle working power of God passed away. To which begs the question, why them? Why did they need the miracle working power of God more than we do? The Bible says that toward the end, in the last days, the devil will get worse and worse. Well, why did they need the miracle working power of God in a day when the devil was operating less than he will in the end times? It doesn't make sense. If that's the case, then God did us an injustice not having us live during the apostles' time. But God's no respecter of persons, and God's not unjust. Notice in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 18, it says, Now some people will say this is just for the Jews and just pertains to the Jews. And if you want to let the devil steal something from you, that's okay with me. But the Bible says that everything in the Old Testament is given unto us as a type or an admonition or something that does belong to us. So even as, if there is a specific message that belongs to the Jews and not to the church, the general message belongs to the church. Notice it says, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts which dwelleth in Mount Zion. Now the fact that it mentions Zion tells me that it's talking about something that God intended not only for Israel, but also for the church. Because again, God doesn't change and his purpose and his plan doesn't change. And he doesn't want more for Israel, the nation of Israel, than he does for his people, his children, the church, his family. The Bible talks about Israel being servants. The Bible talks about us being sons. Well, who do you want more for? The people that you work for or people that work for you or your family members? I'm a lot closer and care a lot more about my family members than I do the people that I employ. Well, why wouldn't the same thing be true for God? Notice what it says. It says God created Israel. Paul goes so far as to tell us that the church is Israel. He goes so far as to say that not all Israel is really Israel. But there's a spiritual Israel and a natural Israel. The Israel of promise is the spiritual Israel which is fulfilled in the work of Jesus on the cross and those that receive him as Lord and Savior. So why would God want more for Israel, the nation, than he wants for his family, his church? He says, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me. Why wouldn't that include the church? 
are for signs and wonders in Israel. Are for signs and wonders. Literally, another translation says God created his people to perform signs and wonders for. Now notice he's the miracle worker. From the Lord of hosts which dwelleth in Mount Zion. Robert Young was uh, the foremost Greek scholar in his day. He's the author of Young's Analytical Concordance. It's not used so much nowadays. Most everybody has coded the Bible programs and electronic programs to the Strong's Concordance. But Young's Concordance is really, really good in a lot of respects. I wish it was used more than it is. I wish the programs that I had were, were attached to it rather than Strong's, frankly. Because Dr. Young, being an expert on the language, would amplify many of the meanings of the Greek words. And as such, he did this with, uh, with the word miracles. He goes into some detail and notes on his, uh, in his concordance about that miracles is, uh, is literally from the word dunamis, which means power. He said it could easily be translated instead of working of miracles, acts of power. But then he goes so far as to say the power that's being spoken of is not just ordinary strength as we would consider it or power in a general sense. But he said this word miracles that comes from the word dunamis literally means staggering wonders of astonishment. He then said that it also means Explosions of almightiness. I like that. To another is given the working of explosions of almightiness. Explosions of almightiness. Now turn with me over to uh, Matthew chapter 15. Let me show you working of miracles in operations here. Matthew chapter 15 tells us about Jesus and his healing ministry. And as I said, there's a lot more emphasis in the New Testament about healing than there is working of miracles. Now, we know Jesus turned the water into wine. Water doesn't normally normally turn into wine. Certainly not instantly as it did in Jesus' case. So here's divine intervention into the ordinary course of nature. But here's another miracle or numerous miracles, we don't know how many, but it, but it would be a number, I guess, that the Bible tells us about. In uh, Let's start in verse 29, Matthew 15, verse 29. It said, And Jesus departed from thence and came nigh unto the Sea of Galilee and went up into a mountain and sat down there. And great multitudes came to him. Now, I don't know how big a multitude is, but however big a multitude is, it talks about even greater multitudes than that. Greater, great multitudes, plural. Lots and lots of people. And great multitudes came unto him, having with them those that were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them, insomuch that the multitudes wondered when they saw the dumb to speak, 
the maimed to be whole and the lame to walk and the blind to see. And they glorified the God of Israel. Now, do you understand what maimed means? Maimed means missing body parts. Now, bear with me for a moment while I read something into this. You judge it for yourself and see if we're doing any disservice to it. When the lame are made to walk, we assume they have legs. When the blind are made to see, we assume they have eyes. And so this would be, or could be at least, it wouldn't have to be, but it could be, and I I hate to say this, but I, I have to say it for a fact, a simple case of healing. Where a disease condition is restored to health. Or an inoperative eye or inoperative legs are made operational once again. But maimed is a totally different thing. You can't heal a hand that's not there. You can't heal a leg that's missing. And what I want you to notice about this is that there's no special emphasis made on the creative miracle that had to take place for the maimed to be made whole. Now, let's compare that with how we would operate. Let's say that we have a healing line. We have a blind eye opened. We have a person that can't walk healed. We have a person that's missing a leg. A leg appears and and instantly is created. Would we just advertise that we had a healing service? (laughs) We'd make a big deal about that, wouldn't we? We'd say, man, we got a blind person healed. We got a lame person to walk. And you won't believe this. We got a leg to appear that wasn't there. See, in our thinking, it's bigger and it's better. In our thinking, it's a whole different, whole different deal. But the Holy Spirit inspired me, uh, Matthew. So we have to assume that this is the Holy Spirit's take on this event. As, again, I hate to use this terminology, but ho-hum miracle working power of God was in effect could it be that our thinking about healing and miracles and the power of God is a little out of whack could it be that we should be expectant of the power of God to such a degree that we don't tout our own success when something miraculous happens I told you the story last week about uh, a meeting that that, uh, Brother Hagen held in Detroit when I was still working with him there was a lady in this uh, I think I called it a moo-moo dress you remember the story of those of you that were with us well she was a big woman anyway but she had a 74 inch waist we found out later on she had a 74 inch waist and a part of the cause for that was because she had a 28-pound tumor in her abdomen. Well, Brother Hagen's laying hands on her. Brother Hagen had a he- gift of healing in the area of tumors and growths and hernias and ruptures and things like that. So Brother Hagen's laying hands on her. Hundreds of people are in the healing line. So he's going down. He's not stopping to find out what her problem is. He's just laying hands on one person right after the other, trying to get to them while the anointing is on him. And so he lays hands on her. She falls in the floor. When she gets up, she's got a 32-inch waist. 
God's weight loss program. (laughs) Well, that was a gift of healing. Now, when we got back to Tulsa, we got a call from her, her husband who wanted to report what was going on. All that we knew was that, that she had been healed, but we didn't have any details because they hadn't been to the doctors and had the doctors check them out or anything like that. So a lot of information they didn't have. But when we got back to Tulsa, she called, her husband called in and related what had taken place the week before in Detroit and said that when they went back to the doctors, the doctors compared the x-rays that he had taken, the new x-rays that he had taken with the old x-rays, Clearly, the tumor wasn't there. He had no explanation for it. But then he said, as kind of a side note, he said, now, you remember several years ago, your wife had a hysterectomy. Well, those missing parts are back again. So if you guys don't want to have any more kids, you better take some precautions. (laughs) Now, here was something that took place without anybody knowing it. Until they got to the doctor and the, and the x-rays showed it up. But you've got a gift of healing. What we would call a regular healing anointing in operation. And that regular healing anointing ministered to this woman. Triggered a gift of healing and working of miracles. And nobody knew a thing was going on. Now I would suggest to you folks. That that's the way that God gets the credit. Rather than us advertising ourselves as workers of miracles. I would suggest to you that that's the way God wants it to be. And so we've got to be real careful when we talk about these things. Because there's a real fine line between desiring the the gifts of the spirit. The manifestations of the spirit. Because then you have to ask yourself why do you want them? Why do you want explosions of almightiness? And I do. I do. But why do we want them? Do we want them so that we can make a name for ourselves? Or do we want them because we, because that's God's means of advertising Jesus is alive? See, that goes back to what Paul wrote to the church about coveting the best gifts. He's not writing to to Jim Jones in the church. Saying, now, Jim, you covet the best gifts. And I think that's what we've done to a great degree. Individually, we covet them. Individually, we desire them. Individually, we may be zealous for them. But he's not talking to individuals to be jealous. He's talking about the church body to be zealous for these things. That's what brings results. Now, I've got another question to ask you, folks. Why has the Spirit of God been present when we've been talking about these things? Maybe I should ask the question, are you aware when the Spirit of God is present? There's a presence of the Holy Ghost here and has been all the time that we've been talking about these things. It's a different presence of the Holy Ghost than what we normally have. It's a rare thing when we don't have some manifestation of the presence of God here. Now, for me, I always have to ask the question, why is he here? I don't believe God wastes time. 
I don't believe God just comes to sit with us. But whenever the Holy Ghost manifests himself, there's got to be a reason. Well, I particularly sought the Lord about this after last Sunday morning service. Last Sunday morning was really kind of... Uh, well, I started to say difficult, but let me just say unusual. No, it was difficult. It was unusual, but it was difficult. Because it's a rare thing for me not to, not to know what I want to say because I work it out with God ahead of time. Now, there are things that, that the Lord will add in at the last moment, so to speak. And there are a lot of times where I'm speaking by the inspiration of the Spirit, not having planned anything along the way. That's one of the reasons I don't use notes. On the times where I have to use notes, I find that it's a lot more difficult for me to, to, uh, to get stuff on the fly from the Holy Ghost. But last Sunday morning, I was stuck. But there was a presence of God that was there. And so I'm, I, I'm asking the Lord within myself why is that I mean he can't be anointing what I'm saying because I'm stuck without anything to say it's not that I don't know something about the subject although I know less and I I think I said something about this last Sunday I know less about the gifts of healings from experience than I do any of the others I'm not aware that working of miracles has ever operated through me but I know a lot about them from a doctrinal standpoint. So why is the Holy Ghost there? Whenever there's a presence of God, there's got to be a purpose. So why is the presence of God here in the way that it is, particularly during this series? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. God's trying to build your faith and my faith for these things to occur. Heard Brother Hagin say one time that he was talking with a dear friend of his, one of the most spiritual men that he ever claimed to know, J.R. Goodwin. And they were at a a minister's conference or some kind of meeting, convention or so forth, where there were a bunch of other preachers. And... uh, one of the men in this uh, in this group said something in the presence of Brother Hagin and, and Brother Goodwin about uh, manifestations of the Holy Ghost. And he said, boy, we're praying. Our church is praying. We're praying for signs and wonders. We're praying for miracles. We're praying for healings. We're just praying for God to move. And other preachers started chiming in saying, yeah, yeah, we've been doing that too. And we want to do that. And we need to start doing that or whatever the case was. And... Um, Brother Goodwin and Brother, Brother Hagen were quiet. And somebody said to, to Brother Goodwin, well, Brother Goodwin, are you praying for him too? And he said, well, yeah, I always pray for him. He said, they don't work because you pray for him. He said, they work because you teach on him. He said, because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. See, a lot of times people are praying for things they don't have faith for. And they're trying to take the place of believing for something by praying for it. You can pray for healing till you're blue in the face. But if you don't know what the Bible says about Jesus taking your infirmities and bearing your sickness so that you can extend your faith 
and exercise your faith to receive, God can't answer your prayer. The Bible says God sent his word and healed them. Talking about his people. He didn't say he sent prayer for them to be healed. He said he sent his word to heal them. You got a lot of Christians that are praying and praying and praying and saying, well, when I get to heaven, if I don't receive my healing, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask the Lord why. And the simple answer is so many Christians are praying for God to violate his word to do something that he said that would be done through the word of God. So God wants your faith to be to be increased. He wants your faith to be built up with the gifts of the spirit. He wants you and me to believe for explosive almightiness. Explosive almightiness. Staggering wonders of astonishment. And what for? So we'll say, hey, that God stuff really is real. Now, we're supposed to establish what we believe to be true from the word. But so that we can reach the world. So that we can reach the unsaved. So that we can show the unlearned. Believers who have never been taught the truth. That God is a God of power. And that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, let me talk about one other thing and then we'll receive communion. As I said, miracles are spoken of in general terms in our society, specifically by the Bible in the Scripture. But let's talk about the new birth for a second. We may even say, and many do, that the miracle of birth, a new baby being born, is a miracle of nature. Well, it's really not. Babies are supposed to be born in the manner that they're born. In the same way, some might say the new birth is a miracle of God. Well, it's certainly supernatural. There's no question about that. But the Bible tells us that Jesus was slain from the foundations of the world. That means before God ever created a heaven and an earth in Genesis 1-1, God's plan was for man to be redeemed by the blood of Jesus and to be recreated in spirit by believing in his heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead and confessing him with his mouth as Lord and Savior. So the new birth, as miraculous as it may be, operates just the way that God intended for it. It's the ordinary course of nature. So even the new birth is not miraculous in that sense. It's not divine intervention into the ordinary course of nature. Now, Jesus coming to the earth was certainly divine intervention. Jesus going to the cross was divine intervention. But it was to establish the opportunity for redemption, the new birth experience, just the way God planned it. So in that, even the new birth is not miraculous. Now, it may be, it certainly is supernatural. It certainly has miraculous characteristics, divine in nature. But it operates just the way God intended for it to work. It doesn't take some special work of God, some special intervention for somebody to get saved. Salvation is available. Now is the time. Now is the accepted time of salvation. That means anybody can get saved at any moment that they choose to make Jesus the Lord of their lives. It doesn't take some miracle work of God or divine intervention to make it happen. Do you understand what I'm saying? See, I think a lot of times we miss the supernatural by looking for the miraculous. 
We fail to recognize the supernatural nature of things because we're looking for God to intervene in some special way. Folks, I would suggest to you that Jesus coming to the earth and redeeming us from the curse of the law and destroying the works of the devil was divine intervention. So this communion that we receive by the instruction of Jesus himself, the head of the church, is to remind us of what has happened to us. Is to remind us of the new life that we now enjoy and the freedom from the enemy in every respect. Jesus said, he whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Free indeed means free in every area. Now, you may not be enjoying freedom in every area. That doesn't mean it's not yours. You may be believing for freedom that hasn't yet materialized or become a physical reality. But as far as God is concerned, as far as heaven is concerned, as far as eternity is concerned, the work is finished. Are you out there? So this is an opportunity for us to celebrate that which we have, even if we can't see it yet. But it's also a reminder, especially after this morning service and in the middle of this series, it's also a reminder, or should be a reminder to us, that we serve the God that's willing to intervene in the laws of nature, to intervene in the lives of his children, to intervene in any and every way necessary with explosions of his almighty nature and power to enforce that which Jesus has accomplished. Amen? Amen. Gentlemen, would you come forward, please?